one of the things that came out of the meeting yesterday, one of the core values of Life Church, is that we pray first and we do second. And I want to reiterate that today, that before we even try to unpack the Word, uh, we need to pray. And so will you pray with me right now and ask the Holy Spirit to come and, and speak to us? Holy Spirit, we give you this time. You know how much I, as your uh, humble servant, need you. You know that my words will make no difference whatsoever, but if you come and speak, there will be change and growth and fruit and life. And I pray that over these precious people, over your children today. We love you and we trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are in the book of Colossians in our series, uh, How to Study the Bible, Being Equipped to Study Your Bible, and we believe that's a hugely important thing for your discipleship, for your growth into Jesus. And so we've been walking through the book of Colossians just verse by verse, line by line, just like you would study it in your quiet time at home. And we come upon chapter 3, and uh, we find an extremely practical chapter. I mean, what could be more practical than the things that are going on in chapter 3? I mean, how many of you in here today have ever had or currently have something that you want to change in your life? How many of you want to get rid of something, some of the things that Pastor Bill talked very plainly about last week. He did such a nice job with that. Uh, How many of you want to get rid of some of those things and grow into the things that God wants you to grow in? I think all of us in here could say, yes, that's that's what I want. Ultimately, that's what I want to happen. That's what I want to take place. If you're a believer, I would contend, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, and so you want to grow, right? Um, You have two desires going on inside of you now. You have the desires of your flesh, which Colossians talked about, and Pastor Bill addressed that last week. And you have the desires of the Spirit to become more like Jesus Christ. And so we're going to be addressing that today. But friends, everybody in the world is trying to change things. I mean, if you look around, what are some of the most popular selling books? They're all about self-help and change and how to have a better marriage and how to be better with your finances and how to eat right and how to exercise right. And there's self-help with your cars and with your computers and gaining knowledge about this. And there's self-help with everything. And Colossians is not self-help. As a matter of fact, Jesus in the Bible is never self-help. What He wants for you is not for you to become a better you. What He wants for you is to become an entirely new you. He wants the old you to die and the new you to come to life in Jesus Christ. See, the Christian life is not the life that you live out for God, but it's the life that God comes and lives through you. And that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here in Colossians. And I think it just could not be more relevant to us, because all of us are in this place, right? All of us are in this place saying, God, I need help getting rid of this in my life. I hate this about myself. I don't like to see this. And I want this to grow inside of me. And so what I want to do today is I want to outline chapter 3, briefly touch on and remind you, in case you missed it, what Pastor Bill mentioned last week. And I want to give you kind of a six-step process to change and grow in the fruit of the Holy Spirit. To change and grow in Christ and grow in the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's what we all want deep down inside of us. If you're not a Christian here today, then you probably only have one desire, which is to sin. And we would love for you to become a Christian today. That's what all of us were like before we came to Christ. We just had one desire and it was only to sin and do our own thing. Completely selfish. But now that you're a Christian, you have conflicting desires. And that's important for you to realize if you're struggling here today with something that's shaming you and, and dragging you down that, hey, this is all of us. We all have conflicting desires. But we want more and more to grow into Christ and understand how to bear fruit in the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul is addressing here in Colossians 3. So this is how to grow 
and how to bear fruit in Christ from Colossians chapter 3. Now, I'm just going to outline the chapter, these basic six things. And um, hopefully, the Holy Spirit will make application in our hearts and in our lives. So let's start, if, if you have your Bibles, which I hope that you do, because we don't have anything up on the screen today. <laughs> so it's, we have to use real, real Bibles, not the electronic ones. Or if you have it on your app, please go to Colossians chapter 3. Now, I want you to also put a marker or put a, put a finger in Galatians chapter 5. Because sometimes when you're studying the Bible, you come upon a, a passage of Scripture that's very similar to another passage. And actually, you shouldn't read the two exclusive from each other because they're so similar, and Paul says some of the exact same things in Galatians chapter 5, so we're going to be touching on that just a little bit here this morning as we outline these six steps to change and grow and bear fruit in Jesus Christ, all right? Here we go. Point number one is Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, and that is to set your hearts and minds on Christ. Pastor Bill did a nice job talking about this last week. And Hebrews 2 says that to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. There's a good reason for that. Because, friends, if you will set your eyes on yourself and say, I just hate this about myself. I just need to change this thing about myself. If I could only get rid of this thing about myself, you'll never change. And if you do change, it'll only be selfish change. You'll actually become more self-centered and less like Christ the more you focus on yourself in changing. The more you focus on self-help and becoming a better you, the more you'll become selfish and not like Jesus. So that's why Paul says, first and foremost, put your mind on Christ, set your eyes on Christ, set your heart on Christ. He's the only way that you're going to change. All right, then number two, we come to verse five. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Some translations say, whatever belongs to your flesh. And these are the things that Pastor Bill had head on last week. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, you know the list. So you got to put to death these things. Now, that sounds easy, but if any of you have really struggled with a sin struggle in your life, which I have deeply, and, and you just and you wrestle with it week in and week out and day in and day out, you'll know that this is not as easily lived out as it is preached. Amen? This is a difficult thing to do, to put to death the desires of your flesh. And that's why um, I believe that Paul assumes something here that we know. Uh, if you go to Romans chapter 8, which you don't need to turn there, I'll just mention it. He says that if we live according to the flesh, we will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. There's a very important word in there, and that's the Spirit. And he doesn't mention that here, but I think it's assumed. That therefore you put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Point number two is that by the Spirit you need to put to death some things. By the Spirit you need to just knock some things off. But in your flesh, you cannot do that. If you just say, I'm just going to, in my own strength, I'm just going to quit this. I'm just going to stop this. I'm just going to knock that off. If you're just going to self-will it kind of thing, then a couple of things could happen. Number one, the first thing that could happen is that you actually succeed and you quit in your own strength without the power of the Holy Spirit. And then you'll fall into what C.S. Lewis calls the greatest sin, which is pride. You'll say, look how great I am. I stopped that all on my own. And that's exactly what God doesn't want. He doesn't want to trade one sin for the greatest sin, which is pride. Okay? The second thing that can happen is you'll actually make the problem worse, which I call red-button theology. Um, have you, any of you ever grew up like around a farm or something? With you know, Maybe you visited Larry, or you grew up with an uncle who owned some tractors or stuff, and maybe you were walking by some of the machinery, and he said, hey, whatever you do, don't touch that red button. 
Any of you ever had that? Whatever you do, don't, just don't touch that red button. And as a little kid, you're probably thinking, okay, just, this is a simple instruction. Just whatever you do, just today, you know, make sure you don't touch that big, beautiful red button. And you keep walking by it, and you're like, kind of looking at it. I wonder what the red button does. I wonder why he told me not to touch the red button. And that red button is just beautiful, and it, now it's calling to you. And all of a sudden, you're just kind of gripped a little bit by that red button and a little bit fascinated with it. But he said, don't touch the red button. Don't touch the red button. I just can't touch the red button. Whatever you do, do not touch the red button. I wonder if I can touch it without pressing it. And you start thinking, maybe, I wonder what the red button feels like. And the contrast is just so beautiful. That red button is just beautiful. And you you become focused on it. And it becomes, as, as Romans 7 says, the very things that I don't want to do are the things I end up doing. It eats away at your flesh. It actually awakens desire in your flesh because of the law. Paul says the law is actually what produces desire in your flesh. It's the principle of the red button, friends. If you focus on the problem, apart from the Spirit, it'll only awaken the desire for that thing you're trying to quit. So you need to focus on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus and by the Spirit say, Holy Spirit, I'm humbling myself before you. And those of you struggling with a real sin struggle in your life, whatever it is, could be greed, could be sexual stuff, could be um, bitterness and hatred and anger. Those of you who are really struggling with something, you need to wake up every day and say, Holy Spirit, I'm utterly incapable of quitting this. I'm utterly incapable of, of killing this thing. You've got to kill it inside me. Please kill it inside me. I'm fixing my gaze on you. And then you take your eyes off that red button. It's not about not touching the red button. It's about the Holy Spirit killing it inside you. So point number one, fix your eyes on Jesus not on yourself. Point number two, ask the Spirit to kill inside you. Don't focus on the problem. And then point number three brings us to verse 12 where Pastor Bill left off. And this is point number three. Know your position before changing your performance. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Isn't that interesting? Before they've done anything good, before they've done anything right, he calls them holy He calls them chosen. He calls them dearly loved. Friends, you have to know your position in Christ before changing your performance. If you get this backwards, you'll totally screw up any change that you make in your life and it won't actually be good change towards Christ. See, and a lot of Christians come to this passage and they say, okay, therefore, as God's, in order to be God's chosen people, in order to be holy, in order to be dearly loved, I've got to do this, 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 and this. Close yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And he lists off all these things. In order to do this, I've got to be this. But see, that's exactly backwards. It's exactly backwards. And a lot of times you'll hear people say this. Um, you know, we sang about it today. Uh, you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ. Nothing that you do contributes to your salvation. But we hate this, right? Because there's nothing I can do. And that's just too good to be true, isn't it? We don't like this. Everybody has huge issues with this, that we're saved by grace alone. Oh, come on, Pastor Dave. I mean, I heard this, I've heard this a lot. I've got to be able to do something. I've got to be a little bit good, don't I? I can't be saved without at least being a little bit good. Let me, let me reason with you just for a second. If you say, okay, and a lot of people will say this on, on the heels of this, I've got to be a little bit good. Some people will say, well, if you tell me I'm saved by grace alone, then you've removed all my motivation for doing good. How many of you ever thought that? Well, if I'm just saved by grace, then I got no motivation to be good. I got no motivation to change. I got no motivation to put off the old things and put on the new things of the Spirit. 
But if you say that, what you're saying is that if all my motivation for doing good leaves when the fear of punishment leaves, then fear is your only motivation to begin with. You understand that? If, if, if when you lose the fear of punishment, all your motivation for being good leaves, then fear was the only motivation in the first place. And see, friends, fear is inherently selfish. That's all it is. It says, what will happen to me? And what's wrong with the world, after all? It's selfishness. I mean, isn't every one of our sin problems, if you really dig into it, at the root of it, selfishness? Isn't that what Jesus is trying to rid of in us? He's trying to rid us of that? That's deep selfishness? So what happens is, the, the formula sounds like this. If you want to change and do good to make yourself more good, then those things that you do are no good. So if you do the good that you do out of a desire to be good, then it's no good. But if you change and you do the good that you do, knowing that it's no good at all to save you, but you do it only out of love and gratitude to the one who loved you and gave himself for you, then somehow it becomes good. See how that works? If you do the good that you do in order to be good, it's no good. But if you do the good that you do and think it's no good at all, then it becomes good. Because your motivation changes. Now I'm doing things out of love for God. But if you say, Tim Keller puts it like this. I love, I love this, this quote by Tim Keller. He's a pastor in New York City. He says, if you live a good life so God will love and bless you and take you to heaven, it's by definition no good. It's incredibly selfish. So you say, I'm going to go over here and serve the poor. I'm going to go over here and, and, and take care of this widow. I'm going to go over here and, and take care of these orphans. In order that God would love me and bless me and take me to heaven. You didn't do anything for orphans or the poor people. You didn't do anything for God. You did it for yourself. It's inherently selfish. And so what does Jesus do? He frees us from this. He comes to us and he says, I'm going to give you your salvation as a gift. I'm going to give you your righteousness as a gift. We sang about it. It's the gift of God. You couldn't ever do anything to earn it. Romans 4 says God justifies the ungodly. While we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. So when you didn't do anything at all, God comes to you and he says, I'm making you righteous, as if you never did anything. And more than just pardoning you, he says, I'm giving you the exact position of my son, who has never done anything wrong in his entire life. That's what he looks at you as. And then anything good that you do is simply out of love and gratitude for the one who loved you and gave himself for you. And that's how your change can be good. That's how you can actually bear fruit, okay? So we have to understand our position before changing our performance. Your position is given to you up front so that your good deeds, so that your change can actually be for the good and to become more like Christ. Okay, then we get to the fourth thing. So the first thing is set your eyes on Jesus. Second thing, by the Spirit, crucify the deeds of the flesh. Third thing is to understand your position before, under, before changing your performance. And the fourth thing is to ask the Spirit to clothe you in His fruit. Now I've changed this one just a bit. I've changed it to make it more like Galatians 5 and to tie the two passages together because I think it's necessary here. Notice, he says, okay, therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves. Now, we could get confused if we just thought that meant I came up to, you know, Stephen and Bridge and I said, all right, you guys, why don't you go get some humility tomorrow? Because you really need some humility. I want you to go get peace tomorrow and patience. I want you to be more patient. And just put that on. And what if I went to all of you and I just said, you just need to put this on because it's just, it's just the right thing to do. Okay? All of you would say, I'm not sure how. I mean, all these things are very internal. I don't know how you just, just 
all of a sudden have these things. And they're not things that come overnight. As a matter of fact, you recognize this list is very similar to Galatians 5, where Paul talks about the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And that's why I want you to realize this. These things that Paul is telling us to do are not things that you can go and buy. You can't get a box of patience or a box of peace, although we would love it if we could. But these are things that the Holy Spirit has to grow up in you. They're fruits that have to be produced in your life. And so let's look at Galatians 5 where he talks about fruit. Now, fruit is very important to the Christian life. Okay, so we're gonna, I'm going to say a couple of things about fruit before moving on to step number five and how to change and grow and bear fruit. Um, Tim Keller puts it like this. We are not saved by fruit. We're saved by faith. But we're never saved by fruitless faith. And that lines up with James, right? James is kind of confusing to us because we read all the stuff in Romans about grace and how we're saved by grace and it's not by works. And then we get to James and he says, faith without works is dead. But what he's saying is that we're saved by faith not by fruit, not by the things that you produce, but we're never saved by fruitless faith. In other words, if your faith doesn't have any fruit to it, it's not real faith. It's not real faith at all. Something hasn't happened. The Holy Spirit hasn't come inside you because you will produce fruit. And so let's go to Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, and say a couple things about fruit on the way here. In verse 22, he says, But the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Friends, that's all Paul is talking about here in Colossians 3, is living by the Spirit. That's how you overcome the things in your life that you want to get rid of, is by the Spirit. That's how you grow And become more like Jesus is only by the Spirit. It's only by Him. These are things that have to be produced in you. And I want to give you a bit of a rubric to to ask yourself. Am I really growing in the fruit of the Holy Spirit? I want you to be able to tell. Because this is important. Now let's say a couple things about fruit uh, before we we see how we can tell. Uh, Number one, we need to know that fruit is inevitable. That's what I've been saying. If you are a Christian, you will bear fruit. Period. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you. He is a fruit-bearing machine. If you're an apple tree, you're going to bear apples. If you're an orange tree, you're going to have oranges. If you don't, the the keeper of the orchard will cut you down. And Jesus makes reference to that. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he prunes. It's kind of scary talk, isn't it? And this is the scary point up front, that fruit is inevitable. And so we have to be looking at our lives saying, if I'm a Christian, I claim to have the Holy Spirit, I've got to have some of these fruits. I've got to have this fruit in my life, okay? Okay. Now, the second point is comforting right behind the first point. So we've got to keep these two together. You'll be in despair. Fruit growth is gradual. Fruit growth is very gradual. Um, Stephen, are you faster this year than you were last year? You see, he's confident. How do you know that? He just feels it. Okay. Um, most oftentimes... We can't see growth taking place, right? With anything, really, with human growth or plant growth or anything, you can't actually see anything growing. It just grows. And so you don't look at your kids and say, wow, you're really growing right now. You look at them and you say, my, how you've grown, right? Or you measure them on the wall. Growth can be measured, but it can't be seen, okay? You put on your pants after a couple months of eating bad and you're like, wow, I've grown, you know? (laughs) 
but you don't actually feel yourself getting fatter, right? You, you can't actually tell. If you could, it might be a good thing. If your body told you, hey, I'm getting bigger, we need to stop this habit. Um, but it, it just happens over time, and you're like, oh my, I need to do something here. Growth is very, very, very gradual. And sometimes this is very frustrating for all of you who want to change something and you want to grow in, a, in, a fruit of the, Holy, in the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It gets very frustrating, and, and this is a point where we have to say you need to be patient. You need to be patient with yourself, you need to be patient with the believers around you, because growth is so slow that you can't see it happening, and the only way you can tell you've grown is usually by a difficult circumstance. Usually by a trial that comes along and you say, you know what, I, I would have probably handled that differently a couple years ago. I don't think I would have been able to make it through that a few years ago. I think I've grown. And then it gets exciting and you, and you want to grow more. But the fruit of the Holy Spirit, these are internal things that um, are only measured. They're things that you can't see. So you have to be patient. So it's both inevitable and gradual. And then number three, which I just mentioned, the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is internal. Okay? These are all internal things that he lists here. Now, there are things that we love about people and that we really admire about people, but we as humans are very tempted to look on the outside, to look on the external, to say, wow, that person's a great teacher. To say, wow, that person, they, oh man, they can just uh, really sing and, and they're just a great worship leader. They're great at leading a Bible discussion or, or, or they just have such an ability to do this or that. We look at the external things, but notice these are all things coming from the inside. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is not worship leading. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are internal things. So what's going on inside of you? And don't measure it by what you're doing for God. Measure it by what's growing up inside of you. Are you becoming more patient? Are you becoming a person that has a peace that passes all understanding? Are you becoming a person of more joy, greater joy? Because it's inevitable, you will. You'll grow. From the time you become a Christian to the end of your life, you will continually grow in the fruit of the Holy Spirit. What's going on inside of you? And then lastly, and this is going to help you measure it, if you really want to know that the change taking place in your life is not your personality or your chemistry, your Myers-Briggs-ness, if it's not just your makeup, okay? because some of us have different personality traits that would lend to one of these things over the other. If you want to know that it's real Holy Spirit change in your life, it's what you have to look at. And point number four is that the fruit of the Holy Spirit, or the graces of Christianity, which they're sometimes called, these are all connected. Um, Jonathan Ed- Edwards calls them, he calls it the concatenation of the, spirit, of, of the Christian graces. Meaning they're all interconnected, they're all interdependent on one another. You can't have one without having all the others. They grow all at one time. And so sometimes we say, hey, I'm a joyful person, i got the Holy Spirit. But then you could just be an extrovert. Right? You could just, if you don't have self-control, you don't have the fruit of the Holy Spirit. They all grow together. And I'm going to explain this. Okay? Uh, let's go back to, uh, let's, let's look at uh, verse 22. But the fruit, singular, of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, all these things. Some of you are English people in here. This is a disaster. You would give your students a bad grade if they said the fruit of the Holy Spirit is. The subject is singular and the predicate is plural. So no, no, the Apostle Paul, you don't do that. I thought you were more educated than that. But he's making a point here. He's saying that these fruits that I'm going to list, they're all one. And so if you don't have one, you don't have all of them. If you grow in one, you're growing in all of them at the same time. Edwards puts it like this. 
He says, the graces of Christianity are all connected together and mutually dependent on each other. That is, they're all linked together and united one to another and within one another, as the links of a chain are, and one does, as it were, hang on another, from one end of the chain to the other, so that if one link is broken, all fall to the ground, and the whole ceases to be of any effect. Isn't that crazy? Now, let me show you a couple different examples of this. How these are all connected and all interdependent on one another. Uh, Think of self-control and humility. Uh, Pastor Bill and I were talking about all the different ways that we get self-control as human beings. And most of the time, we get them from arrogance, right? You say, I'm not going to eat that. I'm going to exercise diligently because I'm better than these people. I'm not going to drink that. I'm better than these people. And you're kind of sort of filled with a sense of pride and arrogance that I'm better than these people, so I have this this really diligent self-control. So you can get self-control from a lot of different places. It doesn't have to come from the Holy Spirit. But true self-control comes from humility. It comes from saying before God, I, I can't change anything on my own, Lord. I need your Holy Spirit. It comes from this posture of I need you, Lord. Humility. And then you get the self-control that is unflappable. That is paired with uh, humility and all the other graces and patience and love and joy. Or think about how boys get self-control over crying. You know, it's, it's a fact. Guys cry less than girls. That, that has to do some with our, our brain makeup, but it also has some to do with what happens when we're little kids, right? Someone comes along and says to a little boy who's crying, hey, don't act like a girl. I mean, you guys have ever had that, right? Produces instant self-control in you. Instant. But what does it do it by? How does it work? It works by putting you in a superior position over girls. I'm better than, these, I'm better than girls, so I'm not going to cry. See, self-control that comes from the Holy Spirit is born out of humility. Think about peace and humility. This one rocked me this past week because I realized how bankrupt I was when it comes to true peace and humility because the two are always interconnected and they go along with each other. When uh, my friend's daughter died this past week, I found myself in a tizzy of worry and fret and fear. What's going to happen to my girls? I could lose any of them at any time. I started crawling in their bedrooms when they're asleep and watching them, making sure they're breathing and all these different obsessive things. And just worrying about it, waking up, will this be my last day? Will I have to go through that? And it is just tragic and painful. But here's what happened, friends. And and here's how these two go together. Uh, Worry, what, what is peace? It's really the lack of anxiety and worry, right? That's what peace is. It's just the lack of anxiety and worry. And worry in the Bible is always a refusal to take a humble posture before God and say, God, you know best, I don't. Worry says, I know. I know what's going to be good for me. I know the way the universe should run. I know what, how things need to go. I know, I know, I know. But humility says, Lord, I don't know. There's so much I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I can't possibly know all the things that you know. I don't know when I'm going to die. I don't know when my daughters are going to die. I don't know if my wife is going to die. I don't know what kind of tragedies I'm going to go through. And I don't know what I need, really. I mean, I have an idea of what I would like. Certainly all of us do. But I really don't know what I need. He does. And so humility is saying, hey, I need to take a posture of I don't know. There's so much that I don't know before God. And then that fills you instantly with a sense of peace that is unflappable. But you can get peace from a lot of different places or counterfeit peace. Peace that appears on the outside to be true peace. Think about the people that just don't give a rip about anything. You know, they're not caring, they're not gentle, they're not kind or loving. But man, you look at them and you're like, wow, you just have such peace. Well, it's just because they don't care. That's not peace of the Holy Spirit. You know? 
They just don't care. Or you, or you talk to some people and their peace comes from their arrogance. Their peace comes from, well, I planned well, or I saved for my retirement, or I went to the right school, or I, I married the right person, or I'm really educated. Their peace is found in other things, and that peace will be destroyed when tragedy hits them. The peace that can say it is well with my soul when losing four daughters in the icy Atlantic, as Horatio Bonner did, that kind of peace comes from the Holy Spirit. That kind of peace comes from a humility, a posture that says, I don't know. There's so much that I don't know, but I trust that you know. I trust that your ways are higher than my ways. Think about joy and self-control. Why, why do we get addicted to things, friends? I mean, you and I, we, we're not different at all in this, that we all get addicted to things. We all get caught up in, in crazy cycles of addictions and, and dependencies on things. And the reason why is because we just don't have any joy. The reason why we don't have self-control is because a lot of times we just don't have any joy. We don't have any joy, and so we go looking for it in other things. We don't have any joy in Christ, and so we go, we go looking for it in other things. And I've done that so many times in my life. You go searching. But see, true joy, and some of you will say, wow, that person's so joyful. They must have the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But they have no self-control, and they're not very uh, faithful. See, they don't have real self-control. They don't have real, self- they don't have real joy because it it's got to come together with self-control. Are you seeing what I'm saying here? These all go together. As Edward says, they're concatenated. So you have to measure your growth in the Spirit by measuring all of them at one time. How am I growing in all these graces at one time? I mean, patience and faith and joy. Patience comes from faith because you have faith that God's working everything out and so you can be patient. And faith produces this joy that God is going to renew all things as we sang about this morning. That he's going to bring restoration. Love and faith are talked about so many times in connection with one another that if you don't have faith in God, you can't love him. And if you don't love people, you can't love God. You're a liar, according to 1 John chapter 4. They all go together. How are you doing with this? I don't encourage you to examine yourself. I encourage you to go to your friends or your spouse. Say, hey, what kind of fruit do you see in my life? The Holy Spirit. And then, you know kind of cower up a little bit. Just hit me with it. Do you see any fruit? I want to know. I want to know if I'm growing here. If you evaluate yourself, you'll never be honest. You might be too hard on yourself or not hard enough. So ask your spouse. Ask your friends. Hey, do you see fruit in my life? And know that you have to be patient because it's very gradual. But do you see me growing in love and patience? Do you see me growing in compassion and integrity? Do you see me growing in, in joy? Because you will be as a Christian. Okay, so now let's go back to those six things on how to change and grow as a believer. Colossians chapter 3. Number one, set your sights on Jesus. Number two, put to death what is from your earthly nature. Number three, you've got to know your position before changing your performance. Number four, ask the Holy Spirit to clothe you with His fruit. And then number five, stay in the Word of Christ. And stay looking at Christ. Twice he tells us to keep our sights on Jesus. Look at this in chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Keep your sights set on Jesus. Stay in the word of Christ. Stay looking at Him. Because friends, how do we know what true forgiveness is? Until we see Jesus crying out on the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. How do we know, friends, what true kindness is except to see 
uh, Jesus kneeling down with a woman caught in adultery and saying, where are your accusers? I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. How do we know what that is until we look at Jesus? How do we know what true humility is until we read that though he was rich, Jesus, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich? How do we understand that until we see Jesus? How do we, how do we get that into our hearts until we see him becoming all these things? How do we know what true love is except that Jesus said, greater love has no one than this than it, that he lay down his life for his friends? And we see Jesus doing that very same thing for us. Friends, Jesus is our model here. He is the one that we are becoming like. And He has given us His Spirit to make us like Him. That's what He's done. And that brings me to my last point, number six. Give in to the lusts of the Spirit. This may sound risque. Let's go back to Galatians chapter 5. But nothing is more true if you're really struggling here today. And I know, I know a lot of us are. And I've had so many times in my life where uh, I, I needed this. And I'm telling you, Galatians 5 is one of the passages that's walked me through freedom from sin struggles. This is life by the Spirit. Galatians 5, verse 16, he says, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. It's as simple as that. I could have just saved myself 30 minutes. Because that's really what Paul's saying here. Live in the Spirit, friends. Live in the Spirit. You won't do the things that you don't want to do, and you will do all the things that God wants you to do. You'll grow in the fruit if you live in the Spirit, and you won't continue in the behaviors of your old nature. That's all it is. It's very simple, but he goes on. Verse 17, he says, For the sinful nature, or the flesh, I like the word flesh better, the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit. That word desires actually means lusts, which is an overwhelming desire or craving for. And I don't need to explain that anymore because all of us know what it means to lust, right? We all know what it means to have an overwhelming or desire and craving for sin. Every one of us in this room knows what that is. Whether that be to get revenge or that be a sexual thing or that be for greed or money. And he says the, the flesh lusts against the spirit. It lusts for what is contrary to the spirit. And the spirit lusts for what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. I want to underscore that. You don't do what you want. You, in Christ, wants to do what the Spirit wants you to do. You really do. Sin is now grievous to you. You hate sin. But you still do it sometimes. Because your flesh pulls you into it. You're tempted and you get pulled into it. But really, you don't want to do it. And this is, friends, a sobering reminder that we'll be at war, our spirit and our flesh, till the day we die. I know that's not necessarily good news today. That's not necessarily comforting, but maybe for some of you it is. That you're not searching for some um, really uh, all-inclusive solution, self-help fix, so that you never struggle with or never tempted again. This will be all-out war until the day you die. You will always have to be guarding yourself from greed and sexual immorality and from hatred and bitterness and anger and envy and strife. You'll always have to be warring against that. Because your flesh will be warring, will be lusting for these things. But, most of the time, Christians are convinced themselves that I've only got one lust inside of me. And that's for all these things of my flesh. But you have another lust going on. There's always two. And I would contend that the lusts of the Spirit are stronger than the lusts of your flesh. Even if it doesn't feel that way, I would contend that the Holy Spirit is stronger than any desire that you ever had, any craving or any addiction that you've ever had. The desire of the Holy Spirit is stronger, and He is lusting inside of you. 
He has an intense desire or craving for something. And what is that something? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. The Holy Spirit loves Jesus. He's in love with Jesus. He has Jesus pinned up all over his room. He is constantly wanting to show you Jesus. The Holy Spirit is like, will you just look at Jesus for a second? I know that's a, te- that's a temptation. I know that's attractive. I know that, that pulls at you. I know. I understand. I've, I've been tempted just like you, but the Holy Spirit says, will you just look at Jesus? We're called the bride of Christ. Jesus is called the bridegroom. The Holy Spirit's like the best man and the maid of honor. He's like, here's the reason why you're struggling with becoming patient and with self-control and all these things. You just don't see it. You don't see how amazing He is. You don't see how beautiful He is. You don't see how marvelous He is, how radiant He is. If you'll just look at Jesus and find your treasure in Jesus, a lot of these things will go away to some degree. Yes, you'll still be tempted, but you won't fall if you give in to the lusts of the Spirit. Give in to the greater lust. Give in to the greater desire. You might think that sounds weird because you're used to just trying to suppress every desire. But I'm saying no. Give in to your desire. Give in to your lust. Give in to the lust of the Spirit. He's craving for you to see Jesus for who He really is. Jesus solves the problem. He gives us joy. He gives us hope. He gives us peace. He gives us life. He gives us love. He gives us everything that we've ever desired. And, and by looking at Him and staying focused on Him, we can grow and change and produce fruit. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank you that it's like a two-edged sword and it divides the issues of our hearts. I pray for everyone in here that is really struggling. Knowing myself so, so many days, I just begged for you to take certain things away. And knowing so many days, I just so long to see growth in my life. And still do. And still find myself so bankrupt in so many of these areas, Lord. Still finding myself so needing to grow in the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would send your Spirit right now to set us free. I pray that your Spirit would lust inside of us for Jesus. That he would create an intense desire and craving to see Jesus for how wonderful, how magnificent he really is. I pray that your Spirit would set us free by walking in him from the addictions that plague us from the things that would pull us down, from the things that would try to drag us away from our allegiance to Christ. I pray that you would silence the plans of the enemy in all these people's lives here today. As he tries to tempt them and trick them and offer them this trick and that trick and this bait over here and that bait over there, I pray that you would interrupt his plans, Holy Spirit. I pray that you would come in and you would create an unbelievable view of Jesus in their hearts. I pray that you would create a fixation on Jesus like never before, a fascination with Him, where they find their treasure in Jesus and nowhere else. I pray that there would be power in your Holy Spirit to change and grow and to bear fruit in Jesus Christ. We ask all this in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.